1: Of all the great sporting events that grip fans over the course of the summer, the tennis at Roland Garros and Wimbledon, cricket around the country, the Open Golf Championship, only one, the Tour de France, involves an activity that also happens to be a part of many people's everyday lives. I'm David Horspool, and you're listening to TLS Voices. Cycling those of us who love it, is the most innocent, most inspirational of pastimes. Yet the sport it has given rise to, professional road racing, seems almost inexhaustibly corruptible. For those who write about cycling, that tension provides much of the fascination. But for a vision of the bike as a pure and blameless pleasure, we can begin with H.G. Wells' Everyman, Mr. Polly.
0: The next morning, Mr Polly went out early and reappeared with a purchase, a safety bicycle which he proposed to study and master in the sandy lane below the Johnson's house, but over the struggle that preceded his mastery, it is humane to draw a veil. A belated spring, to make up for lost time, was now advancing with great strides. Sunshine and a stirring wind were poured out over the land Fleets of towering clouds sailed upon urgent, tremendous missions across the blue sea of heaven, and presently Mr Polly was riding a little unstably along unfamiliar Surrey roads, wondering always what was round the next corner, and marking the blackthorn, and looking out for the first white flower buds of the May. He was perplexed and distressed, as indeed are all right-thinking souls, that there is no May in early May. He did not ride at the even pace sensible people use who have marked out a journey from one place to another and settled what time it will take them. He rode at variable speeds, and always as though he was looking for something that missing left life attractive still, but a little wanting in significance. And sometimes he was so unreasonably happy he had to whistle and sing, and sometimes he was incredibly, but not at all painfully, sad. His indigestion vanished with air and exercise and it was quite pleasant in the evening to stroll about the garden with Johnson and discuss plans for the future. Johnson was full of ideas. Moreover, Mr Polly had marked the road that led to Stampton, that rising populous suburb, and as his bicycle legs grew strong his wheel, with a sort of inevitableness, carried him towards a row of houses in a back street in which his Larkins cousins made their home together. He was received with great enthusiasm.
1: Strange to think that when Wells published The History of Mr Polly in 1910 the Tour was already seven years old. As its legendary requirements of superhuman endurance, duly written up in newspapers, took hold, the Tour created some of the first sporting stars. None was bigger than the great Italian rider Fausto Coppi, who won the Tour de France twice and the Italian equivalent, the Giro, five times. The Turin-born novelist Ugo Riccarelli even made Coppi the subject of an otherworldly tale, Coppi's Angel, which takes place in the last year of the cyclist's life.
0: On 12th of February 1959, Fausto Coppi came out of the gate to his villa. He stopped for a moment to look at the mist between the Castellania hills, and he thought of the sun he had seen in Spain. It had comforted him like an old friend, it had warmed his back, and for a while it had eased his fatigue. The wheels of the group in front had quickly gone on ahead and he often looked down at the tarmac slipping past as he pretended to be his former self, smiling weakly at the people who lined the side of the road. Above him the sky was blue and the sun shone down on his back. A breath of wind brought cheerful shouts of encouragement and snatches of conversation. Inside him was a cold feeling, the faraway burden of something that disturbed him but he could not understand exactly why. At Sueka he had been distracted by a bird that had flown up lazily from a field. It looked like a pheasant, and for a moment he had followed it with his gaze, as if he had a shotgun in his hands rather than handlebars. He did not see the hole in the road, which threw him onto the ground with a sharp bump. Two fingers broke without his feeling a thing. When he could stop and lift himself up, he did not call out in complaint. Instead, he looked at the thing that was watching him from the top of a tree, which he thought must be the pheasant. Coppy left his home slowly and entered the mist. He was due to cycle towards Acqui, and then through the climbs and descents of the road as far as Cheva. He had three days of rest at Mongelli's house to find his good legs before the meeting in France. Three days of freedom with his old friend, before the circus of bike wheels, planes, massages, journalists, the French and everything else would start up again.
1: A year later, Coppi died of malaria. British involvement in the tour began in 1937, But before Bradley Wiggins managed to win the race in 2012, the most famous English rider in the Tour was the county-Durham-born Tom Simpson. In his book Rule Britannia, the cycling journalist William Fotheringham described Simpson's fate in 1967.
0: At the start of Stage 13, from Marseille to Carpentras over the Mont Ventoux, Simpson was lying seventh overall and needed to make the big push up the standings that would take him close to his target a place in the top three overall, or a spell in the yellow jersey. That morning, the heat was intense as Simpson fooled around in a dinghy in the Vieux-Port for the photographers. As he lined up at the start, he conducted a final radio interview. He apologised for the muffled tone in his voice and opened his mouth, showing the journalist several white pills sitting on his tongue. That was just to get me up this morning, he laughed. The Ventoux is a bleached white pyramid rearing up to 5,000 feet that can be seen from many miles away, standing alone above the vineyards and olive groves of the Vaucluse. By the time Simpson reached the foot of the mountain, he had emptied two of the three small white pillboxes in his jersey pockets. He had also drunk part of a bottle of brandy passed up by a teammate and had taken more alcohol from a roadside café. On the lower slopes of the mountain, the road rises unrelentingly at between 1 in 10 and 1 in 8, There are none of the hairpin bends that offer a moment's respite on other climbs, and there is no change in the gradient. The scrubby woods offer little shelter from the sun. At first Simpson rode strongly, but he hit trouble soon after the road reached the shoulder of the Great Peak and turned left at a cluster of ski huts known as the Chalet Renard. Here the woods are left behind, and the road begins to cross a massive limestone scree that lasts for four miles to the summit. Every now and then, the tarmac curves into great hollows in the mountainside. In the hot sun, these act as natural ovens, reflecting and intensifying the heat. There were three men in the Great Britain team car that followed Simpson and the leaders up the mountain. The manager, Alec Taylor, the driver, Ken Ryle, and the mechanic, Harry Hall, the only one of the trio who was still alive. As he crossed the scree, Simpson began to ride erratically, zigzagging across the road. For a moment... The men in the car thought he would drop off the edge, but eventually he went to the right, into the stones by the roadside, and fell awkwardly against the bank. Hall was first to him. ''Come on, Tom, that's it, that's your tour finished,'' he said. But Simpson, coherent in manner and determined in tone, wanted to continue. ''I want to go on, Alec,'' he told the manager. ''If he wants to go on, on he goes,'' said Taylor. ''We thought he might just get over the top,'' But after a couple of hundred metres, the zigzagging started again, recalls Hall, who jumped out of the car, ready to catch Simpson once more. By then, the British leader had fallen in the middle of the road. As his heart subsided, his fingers had gripped his handlebars in a desperate last spasm. They had to be unwound before he could be disentangled from the bike. Simpson's last words are famously held to have been, put me back on my bike, but this is probably part of the myth. As Hall helped Simpson back onto his bike and pushed him away, he heard Simpson asking him to tighten up the straps that held his feet fast in the pedals. Me straps, Harry, me straps! And he recalls that the British team leader faintly muttered, On, on, on!
1: If Simpson's tragic encounter with amphetamines and the Alps sound like the darker side of cycling, it was to get much worse. Here is the shame-faced French tour winner... Laurent Fignon's reminiscence of the Tour of Colombia in his misleadingly titled memoir, We Were Young and Carefree.
0: When I imagine the uninitiated reader going through the excesses and delusions of our little world, I do wonder how it all looks. No doubt this visitor would observe our mixed up ways and would feel that our actions were every bit as foolish as we ourselves were. We were young, impudent and sometimes open to youthful temptation. Talking of temptation, the Tour of Colombia 1984 was an astonishing experience, one for which I was hardly ready. As far as the race went, there wasn't much to relate. As for the ambience, sometimes it was more fun than work. But we weren't the ringleaders, that's the least I can say, and I realised during that week that what we got up to in France was the stuff of mere choir boys compared to the values that ruled cycling in the world of the bad lads. The Colombians have a delightful way of reaching an accommodation with reality. Back then, the races there seemed to be sponsored by the local mafia. The cash flowed in torrents and there were guns in suit pockets. All the racing was rigged, and on a more serious note, cocaine was dished up instead of dessert. I can remember one guy in the caravan, clearly a dealer, who had kilos and kilos of white powder on offer in the boot of his car. Because we kept hearing people saying, it's the best in the world, my God, it's amazing, eventually we thought, come on, let's give it a whirl. We did it the evening before the finish in Bogotá, where the Clásico always ended. We weren't taking the race that seriously, so there wasn't much at stake. Four of us got together in a hotel room like kids with a new toy. Each of us had a gram, we divided it up and snorted. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. I looked at the guy next to me. Can you feel anything? No. We couldn't believe it. What a letdown. We pulled out another gram, shared it out and began again. Still nothing. Is that all there is to Coke? I asked unhappily. We obviously weren't patient enough for the first couple of doses. Clearly, the effects eventually reached our dumb little brains. Oh my God. Wow. My head turned inside out. It was an indescribable feeling, a total loss of mental control. My feet left the ground. I felt as if I was producing ideas so fast my mind couldn't keep track of them. I had no idea who I was. Next morning, in the start village, I was in fine form, even though I hadn't closed my eyes all night, and I was flying on the bike, so much so that I won the last stage in Bogota. Then, when I had to go to the medical control, I realised how thoughtless I had been. In a fraction of a second, I saw my whole career run past me. I couldn't stop thinking, but why on earth did I want to go and win that stage? Why? Of course, I believed I was going to test positive. That was the only possible outcome. But some of the Colombian drug testers were turning a blind eye. There was no nasty surprise after the test. I was as pure as the driven snow, white as powder. Thinking back today, I realise it was idiotic, a massive risk. The specialists in breaking the rules were used to risks like this. I wasn't.
1: With role models like that, it is perhaps no wonder that in countries where cycle racing has seeped into the culture, it can do so in strange ways. Take the Belgian novelist Dimitri Verhulst's character, Gerda, in the novel The Misfortunates, with his own unique interpretation of the Tour de France.
0: Scissors and glue reappeared in the life of the almost adult Gerda. In the shed, he stuck the map of France, scale, one to one million, to a large sheet of cardboard, to the great relief of his mother, who saw her son converted to arts and crafts, something that would eventually stimulate him to learn a trade and keep out of pubs, he then traced the whole course made up of 19 magnificent stages on the map start and finish in paris after some calculations he decided that 5 kilometers on the map were equal to one standard glass of alcohol which clearly meant that even a reasonably short stage of 180 kilometers would involve drinking 36 standard glasses of alcohol against the clock but Argurda was, after all, looking for the most complete boozer an exceptional talent, who could only be discovered by setting the bar at an insane height. Extending the analogy to the bike race further, he came up with three classifications, three jerseys to earn. The yellow jersey was for the leader and final winner, the person who completed the course in the fastest time. The green jersey was for the explosive sprinter, the neck-it king and the polka dot jersey could be captured in the mountains where you proceeded by guzzling strong drinks like whiskey and vodka. The plastic racing cyclists I had once played with, in my dreams they had been Lucien Van Imper, or more often Bernard Hinault, which were also the only toys I hadn't been able to get rid of and had wanted to keep because of a feeling that manifested itself even then as an incomprehensible nostalgia, those miniature racing cyclists suddenly disappeared into Gerda's pockets to serve as tokens on the board the competitors would be allowed to advance their cyclist one square per drink. A bit like snakes and ladders, but for pigs.
1: Cycling's most famous bad hat is, of course, Lance Armstrong. Many cycling aficionados threw away their copies of his memoir, It's Not About the Bike, when Armstrong finally admitted to a career of doping. But anyone who wants a sense of the man needs go no further than the book's opening paragraphs.
0: I want to die at a hundred years old with an American flag on my back and the Star of Texas on my helmet, after screaming down an alpine descent on a bicycle at 75 miles per hour. I want to cross one last finish line as my stud wife and my ten children applaud, and then I want to lie down in a field of those famous French sunflowers and gracefully expire, the perfect contradiction to my once-anticipated poignant early demise. A slow death is not for me. I don't do anything slow, not even breathe. I do everything at a fast cadence, eat fast, sleep fast. It makes me crazy when my wife, Kristen, drives our car because she brakes at all the yellow caution lights while I squirm impatiently in the passenger seat. Come on, don't be a skirt, I tell her. Lance, she says, marry a man.
1: The Irish writer Flann O'Brien created a world in which bicycles and men become as one. It is a vision that might have appealed to the great French champion Jacques Anquetil, as told in The Rider, a perfect novella about a bike race by the Dutch novelist Tim Crabé.
0: Jacques Anquetil, five-time winner of the Tour de France, used to take his water bottle out of its holder before every climb and stick it in the back pocket of his jersey. Arp Heldemans, his Dutch lieutenant, watched him do that for years until finally he couldn't stand it any more and asked him why. And Anquetil explained. A rider, said Anquetil, is made up of two parts, a person and a bike. The bike, of course, is the instrument the person uses to go faster, but its weight also slows him down. That really counts when the going gets tough, and in climbing the thing is to make sure the bike is as light as possible. A good way to do that is take the bidon out of its holder. So, at the start of every climb, Anquetil moved his water bottle from its holder to his back pocket. Clear enough. This week's TLS explores the golden age of British cooking and finds out that James I was addicted to strawberries. We consider Ruskin's Venice and his lost daguerreotypes, the parallel lives of Mary's Wollstonecraft and Shelley, and the baroque extravagance of China Mieville's imagination. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.